Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by Swine Tech, the award-winning creators of Smart Guard and Pig Flow. To learn how Pig Flow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by Johnsonville Foods, Hypor Genetics, Swine Robotics, SwineWeb.com, and Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of Hog Hearth. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, we're joined by Levi Maya to talk about a consumer's perspective of modern commercial pork production. How are you doing today, Levi? Good, Matt. How are you? Doing great. Had a good Christmas. Taking some time off here, but obviously still trying to find a way to keep myself busy. Yeah. And I'm very excited to do this episode with you today. We had you come from California to pig production operation and you learned a lot. We learned a lot, had a lot of fun doing it. And I'm excited just to talk about that today. Great. Yeah. Glad to be here. And uh, it was definitely a um, unique experience for me coming, you know, where I grew up in New England. Uh, We had some agriculture, but our idea of agriculture uh, in Rhode Island was sort of you pick strawberries and some cornfields, nothing like what we saw in Iowa. It's very commercial in Iowa. Yeah, for sure. If you could just start off by giving us a little bit of your background, little life story, a little about what you do today, that'd be great. Sure. Um, Well, I grew up in the Northeast. I was born in Rhode Island and lived there uh, throughout my childhood and into my adult life. Uh, Went to school in Boston and uh, worked for a little bit in New England in the telecommunications industry. Uh, moved out to the West Coast in my mid-20s, landed in Santa Barbara in Southern California, about uh, two hours north of Los Angeles, and um, been working for the past uh, couple years on some documentary films. And that's, of course, how we met. Um, We're producing a a film called Pathways to Invention, profiling different Lemelson and MIT award-winning inventors around the country. And uh, you and Abe, of course, were uh, recipients of that prestigious recognition for the work you've done in the swine industry. And so um, we came out to Iowa to to um, interview you guys and see, you know, exactly how this works. And I think I can only speak for myself, but I, I don't think based on my conversations with the rest of the crew afterward, I don't think anybody had really been on a uh, to a commercial farm like that in their lives before. And so it was really eye-opening to see, um, because like I said, you know, we have agriculture in California. A lot of it is, um, uh, you know, we have fields and fields of strawberries and avocados and, and even down between Santa Barbara and Los Angeles, there's lots of, uh, agriculture, but a lot of it is, well, a lot of it's turned to uh, commercial cannabis production, flower production, flowers. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but we do have, we do have other crops and whatnot, but nothing quite like the fifth, was it 1500 pigs that we saw on the, uh, on the Schneider farm in Iowa? Yeah, it was, it was 1500 sows and, and uh, each sow a year will have right around 28 pigs 
throughout the year. And so you guys saw quite a bit of pigs. I think the other guys said that their experience was going to like a petting zoo. Yeah. <laughs> was the closest. And the, you know, honestly, uh, the animals seem to about the same temperament as the ones at the petting zoo. I mean, huge creatures, but very gentle. And um, you had said in advance, don't be scared. And I thought, well, I wouldn't be scared of a pig. But then when I got in there and you see how big <laughs> they are, it's not that you're afraid they're going to attack you so much as you just think they're going to bump into you and bowl you over. You know, <laughs> I just thought they, they were, um, but they were very, uh, very nice temperament. And, and when you said, don't be afraid, I, I kind of was just like, all right, I won't worry about them kind of accidentally trampling me because there's uh, so many of them in there they're three times my size but um yeah it was it was it was really cool to get in there and see them so what were some of the assumptions uh positive negative don't hold anything back that you and your guys had coming into this this farm um uh, speak on your behalf, but I'm assuming the whole shower in shower out experience was something unique for biosecurity. But I, I'm just curious, what were some of your assumptions about the industry, about the farm, about the processes uh, before going in? Well, yeah, the shower in shower out was was surprising. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll leave I'll leave that at that. I'll just say that <laughs> we all took shower, a third shower when we got back. <laughs> to our uh, to our hotel but um aside from aside from that i think the assumptions are you know I, we're we're thinking hey you're going to a pig farm there's 1500 pigs they must be in an enormous mud pit fenced in area somewhere of course it's 25 degrees out so it's probably a frozen mud pit i think we just didn't really know what we were getting into and what we would expect to see um so when we got there and we're, we shower in and walk into this huge facility that's 75 degrees um, and the pigs are, um, you know, under heat lamps. I think it was very different from the, um, the preconceived notions we might have had about what it looked like. It was actually quite a bit cleaner than we expected. There's no mud anywhere. And, and the, the way the floor is designed and the, uh, the waste can just sort of empty away um, was was really surprising. I think we, we expected it to be a lot dirtier. We expected it to, to have, um, you know, to need, uh, waiters to, to walk around in there. So we were just surprised <laughs> by the cleanliness of it all. But, uh, in contrast, I was also surprised by the stench. Oh, <laughs> Which, I bet. Um, it probably many Thanks. of your listeners know the stench well, as it's probably, uh, common throughout the industry, but for us coming in, um, I don't think I've ever smelled a smell that was that bad before. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I actually was concerned, like, is this okay? Can I breathe this or will I, <laughs> will I damage my lungs breathing it? It was so strong. I mean, um, I, I don't want to go into too many details about it, but it, it was, I'll use the word horrific. <laughs> Oh yeah, that first that first experience with the smell of pigs, it it's just that, that ammonia. It's just a strong smell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You talked about safety. Uh, these farms they have uh, like sensors in them. If like mm-hmm. methane or ammonia or any of that ever gets too high, then they'll go off uh, for safety. Mm-hmm. So we were in safe conditions, but yeah, it still still stinks. It still stinks. Yeah. So we were surprised by that, but I mean, ultimately we we got used to it. Um, we uh, we had to you know, 
<laughs> burn our cl- our um our clothes even on the outside <laughs> it felt like it permeated um the stuff we'd left on the uh on the uh outside of the house but still it was it it was surprising so that was probably the the first initial you know only negative reaction that we had as far as the surprising pleasantly surprising things i think were um particularly dr schneider how he his care for the animals obviously these are these are food animals and they their fates sealed but it behooves him both as a business person and it seemed like also as a vet and just a, a human that he cared for these animals i mean maybe not on an individual level that you might care for your own dog or your own cat or even your own pet potbelly pig but um in the sense that it it he he didn't want to see them suffer that was clear and he it benefits him business-wise to make sure that as many pigs come out alive and go to market as possible. So I think that's something that um, coming from the coast and so far removed from food production, particularly from meat production, uh, that people might think, oh, this is, you know, a group of callous people who go around picking up, you know, pigs by their ears and and um, they don't care about them. They treat them like a head of lettuce. And, and that really wasn't the case at all that from our, uh, you know, from our short observation that we were there. So what did you notice in regards to space for the animals or technology that might've surprised you? Yeah, the space, I think, um, you know, I've seen a lot of the campaigns from different animal rights groups about the space and particularly in the, uh, in the uh, farrowing crates where they go in. And so one of the concerns from people is that there's just not enough space, especially during the birthing process and that the pigs can get crushed. And obviously that's what your um, swine tech invention uh, seeks to, seeks to address. So um, I remember discussing that with, uh, with you and with, uh, with Dr. Schneider about, you know, why do they put them in such a small crate for the birthing and, and nursing process for the few days after they're born. And the explanation that you guys gave me was that it's um, it's actually safer if they're in a tighter space and there's less room for the sow to get up and down and, and have a chance to crush the pigs. And she's so exhausted anyway, it's not like she's going to go run around laps in the 72 hours after she gives birth to 10 piglets. So small space, big space, she's basically bedridden for the first couple of days anyway. So um, it's, it's not a problem. The other thing that I, I noticed was um, that the sows that were, I guess they weren't, they were pregnant in the early stages of being pregnant or, or not pregnant and, and, and being fertilized, that they were kind of hanging out and the space that they were in, the pen that they were in was quite large, but then all of them were pig piled. And I guess that's where they got the term from. I've never seen a pig pile before, <laughs> but <laughs> I know as kids, we played pig pile and you'd all jump on somebody and that's what they were doing all in a corner. So you look at this relatively large pen and then there's 40 pigs piled in the corner over there on top of each other. And the rest of the pen is empty. Yeah. You made a really astute um, observation when we went through it, we were filming in gestation and they had all these sows and some would walk past us. Some would, some would not. And you look in, there's, there's these areas, these, these concrete walls that stick out because pigs like to lean up against something when they're sleeping. And, and you said, wow, I can totally see that if I came in here and I only focused on 
where the pigs are in this moment. I didn't provide context of the rest of the environment. It would look like they're crammed in against one another. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, they had all that space, but they just like to sleep next to one another. Yeah, exactly. So um, I think it's important. I mean, I, um, I saw one farm, so I can't speak for the entire industry, but I also think it's, (laughs) I think it's 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 prudent to be cautious about information that we get, especially images that you see, because um, you can misconstrue things. You could also make something look better than it was. But um, obviously, when the pictures are taken that show animals in certain conditions, um, that the way that that's presented could have could be misleading. And so um, I'm looking at it from the perspective of storytelling. And obviously, as a documentary filmmaker, I want to come in and try to tell as accurate a story as I can, at least, um, given my own biases and and, and whatnot, the the best I can do. Um, But if you came in there with the intention of telling uh, a story that fit a particular agenda, you could probably do that by just focusing on the fact that the pigs were in a, in a pile there and 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 it looked like they weren't given a whole lot of space. But um, clearly from what we saw in the entire room there was that the pigs chose to be <laughs> in that pig pile. That was yeah. their choice. And there was plenty of room for them to to um, move around and 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 get away from one another. But they just liked that, I guess, companionship, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very social animals. And I guess for listeners to give you a little bit of a context here, and most of our listeners are in the industry. So the farm we were on was uh, a 1200 Pharaoh to finish operation. It was a pen gestation operation with a neat app feed system that did individualized feeding for all the animals. And it was built or constructed in 2014. And so it was about seven years old, seven, eight years old. And um, yeah, so that should probably, I guess, give a little bit of, of context for, for what Levi and I were walking through. And, uh, I guess what, what else, what else kind of changed from before you went into when you left? Um, well, someone asked me, did, you know, can you eat pig again? Can you eat pork again? Um, and, and I did like the next day, just because that's what was on my breakfast sandwich. So it didn't, it didn't change that for me. Um, But uh, I think it's important for people to understand where animals come from. And I, I've always appreciated sort of the, um, the Native American First Nations perspective on animals uh, as food. And that's that we have respect for them and we revere them and we appreciate the life that they led in order to give us nourishment. And I felt that that was happening at that farm. And that was, um, that was a surprise to me, like I said, I mean, I think it's, um, it's hard to have that sort of reverence for animals on a large scale. uh, But I was impressed that that both you and Abe and Dr. Schneider and the people who seem to work in the industry seem to have that reverence that these are creatures um that uh that deserve proper care and we saw that you know even when you demonstrated your um your uh, invention that your product that keeps the animals from crushing keeps the sows from crushing the piglets you know you said you put a patch on and it uses a 10 stimulation for electrical stimulus to, for moving the mother pig and i mean 
you know, you think if you tell someone that they might think, oh, you're electrocuting the pig. Well, no, you said you tested it on yourselves first. And you figured if a, you know, if a, a human being under 200 pounds could tolerate this relatively small shock, then uh, a three, 400 pound or how heavy are they? Yeah, they're about 500 pounds. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, it was that chiropractic tens impulse, like they yeah. use in, uh, yeah, chiropractic centers for muscle and nerve pain. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a shock, but it's relatively minor and just enough to barely wake her up, move her off the pig and then um, the piglet and, and, and then go back to sleep again. So I think seeing that perspective is important for people who have become so removed from the food production process and, you know, and, and at least being informed about that. I know, um, you know, my, my daughter said to me once, um, she was eating chicken wings and the wings were kind of oversized. And I said, Oh, that, that was a big bird, huh? And she looked at it. She was about four or five years old at the time. And she said, this is a bird. And (laughs) (laughs) my wife and I looked at each other and we're like, Oh, okay. I I don't want to like ruin her meal, but like, (laughs) that's a bird. And she (laughs) said, well, I guess it died anyway, so I should eat it, you know, and it was kind of this sense of like, well, I don't want it to go to waste, but I, she felt this sudden, you know, sympathy for the animal. And, and I, it took her until, I mean, fortunately it happened at five and not 25 for her that she recognized that, that these were living creatures and they gave their life for her meal. And so she, you know, you don't want to waste it. And I I think more people need to see that and, and then make a decision you know, do they want to continue eating animals after having seen that? And if they, if they don't, I can appreciate that perspective. And if they do, then uh, I think they should hold in mind that the, that these creatures are, make sure that cre- the creatures that they're eating are, are being treated well. So you, you've done a lot of work prior in film and, and you've seen a lot of things. And so this, this just probably adds one more one more stamp to the many things that you've, you've done and seen. And I guess I'd like to transition this over towards what thoughts and advice you might have. And when I'm getting into this, what I'm really wanting to do is say, you know, not everybody can get the opportunity to shower in and out of a farm. It's, Mm -hmm. I mean, they're in there to have the proper temperature. It gets really hot. It gets really cold. So it's a, a constant temperature. You can keep disease out by having them indoors. You can keep things a little cleaner, um, but not everybody can do that. Mm. How do we, how does the industry, what advice might you have for consumers in the swine industry as it relates to understanding what farmers do and understanding what consumer consumers need or want to know? And I kind of want you to focus on like, how do you trust it? Like, how do you trust what you're hearing from consumers mm. as being what they truly care about? How do you trust that farmers are telling you the truth? Yeah, uh, that's, I mean, that's the case in pretty much all of the communication that we are taking in today. I mean, you've got social media, um, 24-hour television news. It seems like everyone has an agenda. Everyone has a um, has a perspective that they want to put forth. And how do you trust that what you're seeing um, is the truth with a capital T and does the truth even exist? And without um, transitioning this to a philosophy discussion yeah. <laughs> on the podcast, I think um, it's important to 
from from a public relations and communications perspective to get your story out there, right? And if the only story that's out there is one um, that is harmful to your industry or harmful to the um, the message that you're trying to put forth, and you're at some point you can ignore something, you know, a flash in the pan, some bad press comes along, maybe you ignore it once or twice. But if if everyone's impression or the you know the impression of a large a vast majority of people um if if the information that they're getting is from a single source uh, and you're not putting your counter story out there then it's going to be difficult for them to understand your perspective so i think coming in the images i had of a pig farm were like the crew said a petting zoo where they might have a pig or something um and what you see from animal rights organizations which show deplorable conditions uh potentially you know not even in the united states sometimes um and how do i how do i balance that now i'm going to be suspicious of something that's put out by the you know pork production <laughs> industry if it's a netflix series all about how great pork production is i mean that, that that might be something that uh people sort of say well obviously they have an agenda so i have to take that into account when i'm when i'm watching this um but it's important that that message get out there and that people understand what the industry is doing to address consumers' concerns. Obviously, it was a concern enough here in California that uh, we passed a state law that said that we couldn't import pork products that didn't meet a certain uh, criteria for the production and the raising of of the animals, um, square footage and, and, and whatnot. I'm sure your listeners are, are well familiar with with that proposition that passed. But um, that passed, I think, because a vast majority of consumers care about how their animals are treated and um, probably have only heard some of the facts about um, about the situation. Absolutely. I mean, when you look at that, you being very strong in the media side, if it's not the industry putting out a Netflix, right? Like, how do you weave in industry visuals or or just information about the industry that doesn't seem forced or crammed down your throat, but rather just, I guess, provides exposure to what mm-hmm. do things look like? What do they feel like? What's the yeah. care like? You know, um, making something cool is a, a long and tedious process. Some things become cool organically um or viral you know maybe that's another word for it um yeah but some other things are carefully crafted over time to become something that um that changes an image of something so i think one thing that was this is a little bit of a of a departure from what you're asking me here but i think it's a nice allegory to what you're trying to do so years ago there was a um a tv show on pbs called where in the world is carmen san diego oh yeah and it was it was a based off of a, a a video game at the time that actually wasn't it was popular but wasn't extremely popular it was something that was often found in classrooms it was a trivia game about geography that students could play kids could play anyone could play but um it was often found in schools and was sort of used as a reward in the 80s and early 90s for kids once they finished their work they could go play where in the world is carmen san diego on the apple II computer in the back of the room 
But um, it certainly wasn't something kids were spending a lot of time on on their own. It was just like, hey, I'm at school. It's better than better than, than writing in the notebook with a pen and paper. So I'll do that. Um, this these guys who created the software wanted to create a television show. So they put together this pilot and they shot it. And it looked a lot like like a uh, low production value Jeopardy, sort of a box over the shoulder of the person with a trivia question. They'd say, uh, which is the longest river in the world, the Amazon, the Nile, the Mississippi, and they'd have to pick one and, and they'd get it right. It looked like a geography bee. It wasn't all that exciting. They put it out there. No one was really interested in it. They couldn't get a buyer for it. But this one producer came along and he saw the, what they had and he said, there's something here, like your video game is cool kids like it. It's it, the TV show lacks what the video game has. And we could actually make the video game more popular if we made the TV show even better. So this producer saw the things going hand in hand. And he said, you know what? I, I don't have to be paid to do this. I just want to be your partner. And I want to take this project on. And if you'll listen to the suggestions I have, I think we can have, we can make a big hit both for, uh, for the TV portion of it and also for um, sales of your, of your video game, which has promise. So what he did was he went out and he asked students and kids um, in general, what, what got them excited? What did they like to watch on TV? What were their favorite video games? What were their favorite movies? And he found out that kids really liked stories. They were interested in music and the things that were most appealing to, to kids were bright and colorful. So he crafted a television show, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, this trivia show. And the trivia was just a portion of it. He hired an acapella band. He hired Tony Award-winning actors and actresses to play different characters um, who were part of the detective agency that were hunting down Carmen Sandiego. And they created a second pilot for the show that looked totally different from the geography B version that he had pitched uh, that the, the uh, software producers had pitched a couple of years earlier they went out and they sold it to PBS and they actually told PBS look you guys air it you don't have to pay us anything we'll make this show for you um, and the reason that they didn't charge anything for it was because they felt that the show would become so popular that it would actually help them sell their video games and they'd make all of the money back from the production on the increased sale of the video game. And that's exactly what happened. It became the most popular kids game show on television in an era where there were dozens of kids game shows because they figured out how to make it cool. And so it took a long time. It wasn't something they just went out there. They didn't just put one special on TV. They spent a lot of time and energy figuring out who their audience was, how to meet their audience where they were at, and then how to develop something that could engage the audience over a period of time and turn something that seems relatively uncool, like a geography bee, into the most popular kids show on PBS. That's cool. No, I can totally see what you're trying to draw there. And, and that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. That, so I think if, if, if any industry wants to sort of change their image, I mean, if you can make a geography be cool, then you can get the general public interested in pig farming. I mean, it's a cool thing. People love animals and it, it's sort of, if you, if, if you're, if you're buying pork at the store, but you've never seen the pigs that it came from, 
to me, that's you're, you're missing part of it. And, and for a lot of people, it's difficult to look at the animals because they say, oh, I don't want to eat them because they're, you know, they're so adorable and cute. And they are, but our forefathers and uh, the origins of, of people who, when they're living in, in tribes thousands of years ago, they had to confront their food and see it. And when we become so disconnected from it, I think we then you know, become hesitant to see it because we're afraid of what we'll think of it. We're afraid of ourselves. We're afraid of, um, you know, we, we don't want to see ourselves as, as eating these creatures. But in reality, I think for many people, if they understood where things came from, they could resolve that co- internal conflict that they have and, and actually be better guardians of the food chain. Well said. What, in, I don't know, you I mean you come from the land of nuts and berries, right? In California and mm-hmm. you got some dairy there, but you came Almonds. and saw some stuff in the Midwest. What excites you about the future of agriculture or what are, what are you hoping you see come from the future of agriculture? We talked a little bit about this idea of lab raised meat. I think that's an interesting um it's an interesting idea. I know they've started doing it on some small scale. People are concerned generally about how do we feed the world, right? I mean, we're lucky here in the United States in a lot of ways because we have access to a pretty resilient food supply chain. Um, even with with COVID and especially in the early part of it where we had uh, meat production shut down in some places because of outbreaks and whatnot, it was still accessible for us to find most of the products, maybe not right away, but within a week or two, things were back on the shelves again, right? Um, we're working on a project in Cuba about inventors, makers, people who who shape the world around them using their own hands and their own ideas because they don't have access to things. Oftentimes, they're completely cut off from the global supply chain. That's only gotten worse with the pandemic. Um, I was just talking to one of our contacts down there and he said he was driving a half an hour from his house to pay the equivalent of $25 for a dozen eggs. So it's a challenge to feed the world and in smaller developing emerging markets, we need better ways to do it that are, um, that allow people to continue to have access to food, food security that are, are also ways that we can be um, be sure that we're not having an environmental impact that's detrimental as the world becomes, you know, as we as we seek to raise the level of uh, uh, standard of living around the world, and we want people to more people to have access to the luxuries that that we have here in the West. It's important that as six billion people have access to more protein through meat, that that has a uh, doesn't have a commensurate impact on global warming, carbon footprint, um, just pollution in general. So I'm excited to see what the 21st century, the latter part of the 21st century will bring in the way of scaling food production in a way that's uh, ecologically responsible, environmentally responsible, uh, but also provides an opportunity for people to have access to the um to the diversity of food that we are just used to here in the u.s and and in europe yeah and i think we talked about it a little bit too but when it comes to the united states i mean we're very privileged we do have a robust food supply chain we don't really have to worry about where is food there's people that are going hungry in the u.s and that's a problem 
there's food mm-hmm. and it's figuring out how to get them to those individuals is the problem as opposed to actually growing the food. Mm-hmm. When it comes to lab meat, it's a touchy topic because you have people with livelihoods and it's mm-hmm. something that could, could or could not. I mean, either you're going to share in the the future growth of what's going to be needed from food or, or you are going to lose market share. And so people are curious about what's going to happen there. And really what society is asking is how do we do something easier? So if we don't have to raise a pig, breed a pig, farrow a pig, grow a pig, feed the pig, get water for the pig, take care of the, the manure from the pig, produce the pig, package the pig and sell the pig. Well, it could be a heck of a lot easier if you just lab grow the pig. Mm-hmm. And that's one way to look at it. I mean, it's, it's the privilege of being where we are today is to look at problems differently. I think most of the industry sees it as a competitive alternative for mm-hmm. emerging opportunities. So, I mean, we're going to have a growing population. There's going to be more people we have to feed in the world, and that's going to be part of the solution. But our supply needed today is going to stay steady and raise. I think that's the the general consensus. One thing I'm curious, and we talked about it, was when it comes to lab-grown meat, we have a organic and all-natural side of things today with whole foods. And when mm-hmm. we look at lab-grown, it's not organic and it's not all natural in any way, <laughs> but you don't have to kill an animal. How do you think consumers, particularly those who don't know where their food comes from, are going to handle the split of what is typically united as a, as a thought process? Do you, how do you think that's going to work? Yeah, that's, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting problem, an interesting dichotomy, because like you said, um, oftentimes people who share one set of values uh, find the other thing to be abhorrent. So how do you get them to eat lab-grown meat? Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I think, I mean, my, my guess is as good as anybody's, but I think that, that both live animal meat production and lab-grown meat production will exist side by side. And the yeah. only way that we're going to feed the entire... Oh, that's my... my my weather alert radio i think we're getting ready to have a storm here so that was the uh (laughs) no problem (laughs) that's character yeah (laughs) um southern california having some rain is a weather emergency um i think you'll probably see that these these two means of meat production will grow side by side and coexist because we can't feed the world with just live animals. We just, there's just not enough resources to do that and, and provide the same level of access that we have in developed countries to developing countries. Um, but that said, I'm sure people will, will have a choice and they'll continue to make that choice. And it'll probably be a privilege to eat uh, food that was produced from livestock rather than laboratory. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to get on the moon and, and go to Mars and do all this stuff that Elon's wanting to do, I mean, I don't know how easy it's going to be to raise livestock on the moon. So it, uh, you need the moon food. <laughs> yeah, moon food. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, we appreciate you being on the Popular Pig Podcast. I ask a couple questions that uh, kind of wrap things up. The first being, what's something unique about yourself that you'd say most people do not know? Oh, that most people don't know. Um. Oh boy. I don't know. Um, 
<laughs> well, you're not <laughs> in I, the industry, so you could say, what do you do in your free time? Okay, so um, I'm an amateur radio operator. That's something that's kind of interest, interesting that has maybe nothing or everything to do with my professional interests, but um, I enjoy um, building and fixing old radios and new radios and shortwave VHF, UHF, all those different things. So um, yeah, my, my grandfather was um, an amateur radio operator after world war II, and it sort of became his entree into the telecommunications business, radio business. He was um, he worked in Boston for the first, and then in Providence for the first FM uh, broadcast radio station. It was a classical music station, WPFM in Providence. And they were the first on the air in the state with, um, with an FM signal. And, uh, so yeah, I guess it's in the genes. I became interested in, in broadcasting and technology and I guess, um, amateur radio in the, in the forties, fifties, and sixties was sort of equivalent to coding and computer hacking and, um, and making today. So it's something that I've held on to over the years and um, got a, a collection of stuff here in my home office that I work on. That's neat. Actually, and I'm going to reserve the the slight chance that I'm wrong on this one, but Dr. Schneider's dad, who, who owned the farm we were at, mm-hmm. I believe that he was a radio operator in Vietnam. Oh, okay. Uh, for Vietnam or that uh-huh. war. So he, there were some neat ties there. Too bad we didn't have the opportunity to introduce you to, but uh, what's a golden nugget that you'd like to leave for listeners, a life lesson that's helped guide you that mm-hmm. uh, you'd like to share? Well, I think one thing we learned on this, um, on this production and particularly with, um, with, with the pig farm, uh, but also just an access in general throughout as we were visiting different inventors around the country was that persistence pays off, you know, and I'm so glad that you guys were able to get us on the farm so we could see that firsthand. And so we can bring it to the viewers of the film. And um, I know it was, it was a challenge for you to get on there, get us on, uh, on the property there to shower in and out, obviously, you know, (laughs) took time and resources from Dr. Schneider, who's got more than a thousand pigs to take care of in a day. So, but you know, we were persistent with you and then you were persistent with them to make that happen. And I think it will, it will pay off in a big way for the viewers of the film. So um, just in general, not giving up on things. And if someone says no, or if something seems like it just isn't going to happen, just being politely persistent. Um, And that doesn't always mean nagging people. It just means finding ways to get what you want done, done because um, it, 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 there can often be a big payoff and um, and for us I think it really it's, it changed our personal perspectives on pig farming we got a lot of context about you and Abe as inventors and got to see firsthand what your invention looked like and how it worked well Levi we really appreciate you joining the popular pig podcast and we wish you the very best and a happy new year for 2022 thanks so um Glad to meet you guys in person. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. 
For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.